is I yank it out of the ceiling by I'm going to work harder at church and take on another role at church and I'm going to serve more at church and I'm going to give more money at church and more time at church and attend more church and if I do enough church, surely the alarm will quit going off. What did I really do when the fire alarm went off in the middle of the night with my kids laying in bed asleep? Amy and I spread out throughout the house, and we looked in every room, looked under the beds. Amy went upstairs. She even looked in the attic. Why? Because if there's a fire there, then I surely want to know it, and I want to get my family out safely. Guilt is a real thing. It's a status. It's a, it's a tangible thing. It's legal liability. And that's why we can't silence it just like a bad feeling that we want to go away. That's why we actually have to look for what it's doing. And so you might think of a fire alarm much like a conscience. Do not follow your conscience, by the way. It's a very bad thing to follow. But do let your conscience guard you from certain things. And so your conscience is this fire alarm going off in your heart saying, hey, you need to look here. There's something to deal with here. You need to look here. There's a fire in an area of your life, and if you don't explore it, it's going to get bigger. If you don't deal with it, it's going to burn more stuff up in your life and relationships. Let's go see what's wrong. But so often we're just trying to silence it. We're just trying to silence it. We're just trying to silence it. And the good news we've looked at now, this is the third week, the good news we've looked at is that Jesus has silenced it with the new covenant. Jesus has lived and died and risen again on your behalf to take your guilt and give you his righteousness. He's done everything necessary for real guilt to be dealt with in a real way. And so we don't have to try to yank the, the, the alarm out of the ceiling anymore. We can go explore the fire. I was listening to something this week. I thought it would be helpful uh, since we've, we've been talking about the subject of sin and guilt and, and, and forgiveness for a few weeks now. Is God has given us this thing called the conscience. Last week it was something that couldn't be perfected under the law. You could never quite feel completely eternal, internally Um, like it has been dealt with. And you still had that accusation going on. But Jesus died to purify our conscience, and we're cleansed, right? Our conscience is cleansed. And so I was listening to something this week, and it said the Bible talks about the conscience in four ways. And I want to give you those because I think it could be helpful for you. First way is a seared conscience, right? So you know what you do, like if you were to smash something really hot and burn your hand with it, then you lose feeling in your hand. It becomes desensitized. You've seared off the feeling. Well, the Bible talks about our consciences being seared if we repeat in sinful patterns, right? Having their consciences seared. So there's no longer the, the mechanism doesn't guard anymore. The fire alarm doesn't go off anymore. I actually have two fire alarms in my house that have been yanked out of the ceiling and not put back up because they won't quit messing up and waking me up from sleep. And so they're just gone. And so often a seared conscience is like that. There's areas of my life that I have desensitized so many times that no alarm goes off anymore in those areas. Now, if I'm a lost person, I'm increasingly searing my heart because there's no Holy Spirit to undo that. But if we're believers, you've had those moments and you've had those areas where there's a season of your life where there are things that you you have so silenced the alarm in 
that until the Holy Spirit broke them back open, you just closed off any feeling of sensitivity, any feeling of conviction anymore for those areas. And God will eventually get it tenderized again. And oftentimes that involves some ripping off and some painful stuff. Second area of conscience is an untrained conscience. So why is it sometimes that believers can, can do things that are wrong and somehow on the surface their conscience seems to let them do it? Well, because our conscience is informed by something. And so often our conscience is informed by how we grew up or the religious tradition we're a part of or, or some other thing. And so we have this untrained conscience. And in this area... I just grew up this way, and it's normal, and until my conscience is retrained, there's this surface sense in which it's okay, even though underneath, God's always provoking, right? But this surface sense, it's okay. So what do we need to do? We need to train our conscience with the word of Christ, train our conscience to act the way it's supposed to. Third type of conscience, we have an overactive conscience, We have an overactive conscience. This would be like the weaker brother uh, in in Corinthians and the weaker brother in Romans. And that is where my conscience is so active, again, probably based on my past, probably a lot of things that I left behind when I came to salvation, that that when I see those things, I, I can't go near them. Right? And so I have this overactive conscience that, that makes me stay away from stuff and, and not receive any liberty in certain areas because those areas were so dangerous and destructive beforehand. And so that I live with this overactive conscience that will either, one, not let me live in certain freedoms, right? because I know that those freedoms have some dangers to me, or an overactive conscience that accuses me in areas, and I feel guilty in areas, where I'm not really guilty, right? And so I'm constantly feeling guilty because I'm not doing more or I'm feeling guilty because I didn't serve more. I'm constantly feeling guilty because I didn't do enough for my family or do enough at church. Guilty, 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 guilty. But I'm not guilty because I'm doing something God commanded me not to do. I'm feeling guilty because my conscience is haywire. It's overactive in this area so that guilt is being produced where there's no guilt. And the last piece of conscience is the biblical conscience, Jesus' word centered on the gospel, not law, is what informs the warning system. It informs the fire alarm. So the fire alarm only goes off when there's a real fire. The fire alarm only goes off when something's wrong. And it goes off because of God's grace to me to say this is an area that Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus rose again for. And you can be the most refreshing words in the Bible. You can be, if you confess your sins, cleansed from all unrighteousness cleansed from all unrighteousness it's a mechanism to drive you to Jesus to find cleansing to find that you are declared innocent and to be at peace again in that area so that's what we're going to be continuing along in Hebrews chapter 9 uh, the closing passage of Hebrews 9 15 through through 28 we're going to be looking again at these these areas and so we've we've been dealing with the new covenant from chapter 8 through the beginning of chapter 9, that Jesus brought into effect the new covenant. Now, the new covenant had three main implications in our life. It had the idea of forgiveness of sins. You have real sin. You have real guilt. God made a real remedy through the death of Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Forgiveness of sins is required for the second piece of the new covenant, 
a permanent established relationship with God where you are adopted as a child and dearly loved as a child of God. You have received adopted status, forgiven of my sins, adopted into God's family. And then that leads us to the final part. If I'm forgiven, if I'm loved by God and love God, then a love-driven obedience to God flows out of that. He writes the law on our hearts, it says. Right? And so my internal heart posture is changed. I see Jesus. I love Jesus. I worship Jesus. I'm thankful to Jesus, and I'm humble for Jesus, and that drives a life of obedience. Forgiveness, relationship, obedience. Forgiveness, relationship, obedience. That's the new covenant. Well, today we're going to be continuing to drill down into the new covenant. Last week, it talked about conscience, not perfected, but in Jesus' conscience, Purified. Last week it talked about access to God was not yet open, but in Jesus, access to God has been open. This week it's going to drill down into kind of three. I hate to keep using numbers. Sorry about that. It just is there. All right, there's three main themes that tie together in this passage. Theme one is forgiveness of sins. We're going to continue to do it. This is the third time. I guess God wants you to get it. Or maybe it's me. He wants me to get it. But for passage after passage, he's dealing with the forgiveness of sins. And so passage after passage, you know what we're going to deal with? Forgiveness of sins. So buckle up and let's do it again. So in verse 15, there's a death that redeemed us from transgressions. In verse 22, um, that, that without blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Verse 26, put away our sins by sacrifice. Verse 28, he appeared once to deal with our sins and it will appear a second time. The second main theme Forgiveness of sins is by death or sacrifice. Again, verse 15, there was a death that brought forgiveness. Putting away our sins by the sacrifice of himself. He came once to to sacrifice himself for our sins. And then the last um, theme that he's going to deal with is eternity. So that those who are called would receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Verse 15. And then, at the end of the passage, it begins and ends the passage with eternity. The beginning, if you're called to salvation and you receive that salvation by faith, eternity is yours. Eternal inheritance is yours. At the end, every single one of you is going to die one day. I will die one day. And when that happens, judgment happens after that. It's appointed to man once to die, then the judgment. And then the very ending of the chapter, he's returning a second time. To save those who earnestly wait on him. So eternity starts the passage and eternity ends the passage. Let's read it and then we'll jump in from there. Chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them, or, yeah, redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For there, where there is a will involved, the death of the one who has made it must be established. For a will only takes effect at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book and all of the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. 
And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices for these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that's not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, prepared, or he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the idea of sin and forgiveness would be precious to us and not repulsive. I pray that we would be a people that quit hiding from you by our works. Quit hiding from you by our distance. Quit hiding from you by avoiding your word, avoiding prayer, avoiding the gathering of the saints. We would be people who are set free to run to you in our sin and not from you. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room as I pray for myself. Set us free today by the forgiveness of sins and the sacrifice of Jesus, not the law and not our works that keep chaining us back. Set us free, we pray, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So treasure Christ for being our sacrificial mediator. Treasure Christ for being our sacrificial mediator. Jesus' sacrifice was required because sin separated us from God. Jesus' sacrifice was required because sin separated us from God. Simple truth. Sin always separates. Sin always separates. And so we can think of the big stuff, but what about the little stuff? What about the fact that I just spend a little too much time neglecting a relationship with my spouse, neglecting to listen, neglecting to engage? What happens? Cooling distance, cooling distance, cooling distance, cooling distance, because sin separates what happens when I find out that my roommate or my teammate has been talking about me behind my back or some friends at work have been talking about me behind my back? Sin separates. Sin always separates. What happens when I come home and you know it's just because I'm stressed and, I, and it's just because there was traffic and it's just because I have a, a bad boss, which I can't say because I have a really like eternally good one, but... I know you have a good reason is all I'm telling to tell you. You have a good reason and you come home and you just unload on your kids. And sin separates. And no longer is there warmth and gladness at your home. There's let me, let me avoid and let me tiptoe around so, so I don't get you more upset. Because sin always separates. Or what about some of these internal sins? And I worry, and I worry, and I worry, and I worry. And, and the more I worry, the more I begin to treat people as somebody who's worried. And so I either smother you and cling tight to you and, and hold fast, or I, I withdraw from you because I'm worried, and I'm worried, and I'm worried. Sin always 
separates. That's all it can do is it separates people from each other. And then you multiply that with this. When I fall into a pattern of sin, I separate from others. You notice that? The more you begin to entertain a sinful pattern in your life, the less you want to wake up so early. You've got to get here at 1045, you know that, right? And, and so the less I want to wake up and like get dressed and do the makeup thing and your hair, I don't have that problem either. And so I just won't show up today. The more you get yourself into a pattern of sin, the more you begin to distance from your friends who are trying to walk with Jesus. The more you get into a pattern of sin, the less you want to be in a, in a Sunday school class, the less you want to be in a microgroup, the less you want to be connected to believers. And so sin always, always, always separates. And so we pick a couple of ways of doing this, right? And so way number one that we're really good at is, you know, I'm just not going to deal with it but I will shove it down, and I'll just pack it down and pack it down. Back in the old days, they had these things called trash compactors. This was even before me, by the way. This was like old houses, and they would have trash compactors, and they'd have these little bitty trash cans, and you'd put stuff in, and you'd push the button, and smush it down, put more stuff in, and smush it down, and that's the way we treat people's sin against us. It's like, I'll just smash it down. I won't deal with it. I, I won't get upset by it. I'll just push it down, but at some point, it overflows and you can't push it down anymore right and so I'll just push it down another way we do it we really love to ghost people I'll just quit responding to their text I'll quit showing up I'll just vanish from their lives as best I can or maybe I won't do that because that's extreme but I'll just begin being a little slower to my responses a little less available next time they need me and I'll let the distance creep in slowly so it doesn't feel like an all-out ghost it's kind of this subtle ghosting of them and so sin separates and we drift away from relationships that we that we once had or another way that we do it I'll blow up at the person who hurt me I'll blow up at the person who who um, talked about me behind my back I'll blow up at the person who blew up at me because I want them to feel the way I feel. I want them to hurt the way I'm hurt. I want them to experience what I've experienced. Because sin always separates people from people. And so, sin creates a debt. It creates a pain of sorts. And somebody has to absorb that debt. Somebody has to absorb that debt and I don't know why it is, but the last thing you do and the last thing I do is the first thing that God tells us to do. And you know what the word is coming out, right? Forgive. When I forgive someone, I absorb the debt they owe. When I forgive someone, I take the pain that they should have. And I absorb it within myself. Why on earth would I do that? Forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. If we had any conception of how much we've been forgiven, if we had any conception of the massive weight of debt that we owed, any conception of what it is like for a perfect holy God to look at me and then to say, I love you and you're righteous, as opposed to, I detest you and you're condemned, then how much more would forgiveness the way I've been forgiven be the way I operate? How much more would I run to forgive others and desire to forgive others instead of trying to hold on? How much more would that change me if I really, really saw that? 
Forgiveness decides that I'm going to pay the debt someone else owes so that a relationship can be restored. Forgive the way God in Christ forgave you. So here's how I'd put it. We have a forgiving God. We are forgiven people, so we forgive people. We have a forgiving God. We are forgiven people, so we forgive people. And I'm going to add one statement. Who repent? Who repent? If they don't repent, I'm here. I'm ready to embrace you with forgiveness, but I can't make you. But as soon as you repent, my arms are already out. They're already wrapping around. They're already pursuing you. And so we have a forgiving God. We are forgiven people. Forgiven people forgive others. Forgiven people are always ready to forgive. And so sin always separates. Think about that when you turn that horizontal relationship vertical. And it's not I'm sinful and you're sinful and maybe you blew it more this time than I did, but I can, we can forgive you turn it vertical. There's a holy God who is perfectly sinless, blazing in his perfection, dwelling in light, inapproachable, and filled with glory. And there's us. Sin separates from God. And there's no way to get up there. There's not an Elon Musk rocket ship. There's not a plane. There is nothing that can get us there. And so God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God lived the life we were meant to live for us. God died on the cross for our sins and the sins of the world. And God was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father and has offered you life in his death, has offered to take your death for you, take your sin for you, give his righteousness to you, give his life to you. That's the new covenant. That's what Jesus is offering to us. And so let's look at that. Sin separates, death, blood covers and forgives, so we're forgiven people. All right, so as we open up the passage, the way he generally tends to do, he gives you on the front end, here's what we're going to talk about. Here is the new facet of the new covenant that I want to explore for these verses. And so in the verse 15, he gives us three statements that are going to show us what he wants to unpack for us. So statement one, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So a mediator is someone that walks in between two parties that are separated and he brings them to the table and he brings them together in reconciliation. That's what a mediator does. As he sits in between two warring parties, brings them to the table and creates peace, creates reconciliation. Now, he does that, Jesus does that through the new covenant, which one thing I want to caution you about is unlike us, like if somebody were to sit down with you and your friend trying to work out your problems, or somebody was to sit down with you and your wife and try to work out your problems, and like, hey, let me hear your side, and let me see what you want, all right. Well, let me hear your side, and let me see what you want, all right. Now, how can we work this together? That is not the way it works with God. God makes demands on you to come to him. God meets his own demands by sending his son in your place. And then you are invited to accept his terms of surrender or not. You're invited to accept his death on your behalf, his righteousness in place of your guilt. You're invited to accept that and receive that or not. But he steps in between with a new covenant of forgiveness to bring us back to God on God's terms. I don't get to come say Jesus plus a little bit of my terms, his terms. First statement, he's a mediator. Second, the result of that mediator, the result of that new covenant 
is that the called ones, those who are called, will receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Will receive the promise of an eternal, eternal inheritance. And so the mediator accomplishes the new covenant to call people to himself. And so he issues a call to people, you're dead in your sins and trespasses. He issues a call to people, God would welcome you back through my death and resurrection. He issues a call to people to turn and believe. And those who receive it, those who hear the call of Jesus and believe the call of Jesus, believe the gospel, they have a promise given to them of an eternal inheritance. And he's going to open and close with the eternal inheritance. But as you think about that, you're invited to a gospel that saves you for eternity. Uh, Romans 8 talks about that you have been given a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And if you are adopted as sons, then you will receive or you're heirs of God. And if you're heirs of God, you're co-heirs with Christ. You have been invited, you have been adopted to receive all that belongs to God, all the riches of his glory and of his, of his eternity. You're invited to share in the family inheritance. By the way, that's good news. You have a promise of an eternal inheritance in God with God of all that belongs to God because of what Jesus did to bring us together. Which leads to a third statement. How does that happen? Is God just like a really good grandfatherly type? Oh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. No. There was a death that redeemed from transgressions. There was a death. But that's so harsh. That's so ugly. Can we just get back to the love stuff? What could be more loving than blood given to you that should have been yours. What could be more loving than a God who would die to satisfy the demands of God so that you could be back with God? There's a death that was required to redeem from transgressions. I want to give you those two words. Redeem means it's an old slave market term, actually, in the ancient world. It would be to go in and pay the price for a slave to set them free, to redeem them back to freedom. You've been redeemed. A price has been paid to buy you from slavery into freedom. You're redeemed. What are you redeemed from? Transgressions. Not mistakes. Not messiness. Transgressions. The word for transgressions is the word for high-handed sin. It's aggravated sin. It's intentional, willful sin. And so earlier in the chapter, the law on the Day of Atonement was offered for the unintentional sins of the people. But Jesus' better sacrifice is for the really big sins of you and I. And it covers all of it. It's for your transgressions. It's for your willful, conscious decision to disobey God. It is for the biggest sins that you hide in the recesses of your heart and mind. And you're like, if anybody knew that, I would be humiliated. If anybody knew that, that they would never look at me the same. And he paid the price to set you free from that and everything else that is a part of your life. 
See, I think we look at, at, at Christianity this way, a lot of times within ourselves. Occasionally, there's some Christians that feel this way. I don't, I don't, thankfully, they're not here. They, they go to the one down the street. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But this is the way we look at other people. You know, there's, there's those Christians who were raised in the Christian home, and they were saved at an early age, and they never really did anything wrong, and then they got Jesus, which is amazing. I would love that to be your testimony. Like, this is not a negative. But those are like tier one kind of Christians. They're up here. They have a special status with God. And then you've got this next level, and this next level, you know, they're pretty good people, and, and, and they're pretty moral people, and then they came to faith a little bit later, but, but there's only a couple of bits of baggage in their life, so, you know, they're, they're right there in the middle, and they're, they're doing fine. They're tier two Christians, but then there's me. And do you know what I did in my relationships before I got married? Do you know the sins that I dabbled in? Do you know... Uh, the abortion, the immorality, the homosexuality, the, the stealing, the, the, the crimes, the whatever. And I've got big sins. So I've got to stay in the back as far away from God as I can get. Thank you, God, that you let me in. But I'll just kind of stay back here and, and on the back row as a tier three kind of Christian. And then you read a verse like this. And he died because it took death. To redeem you tier one Christians and tier three Christians that he does not view that way. To take your worst sin that no one knows about and you cannot imagine anyone seeing. And to declare you free of it. To set you free of it. To forgive you for it. And that's why he came. A death that redeems from the real deal sins. And the little bitty sins as we account them, not God. And everything in between. So that there is one family of God that exists to glorify God in their testimonies of grace, of early salvation and late salvation and good people and bad people to redeem their stories into one great story of a great God who redeems people. And then he walks through, and I know you're getting panicky because it's already 1045 and we've only covered one verse. That's okay. Look how quick we're going to do these next few. Like we're going to go through it really fast. So... He then gives this extended illustration of why is a death necessary? Why are we talking about the death stuff? And what he goes into is, you know these things called wills. Now, it may be covenants, it may be wills, but we're going to use will. Like, for a will, it's just a piece of paper, and I can change it. It's just a piece of paper, and it's meaningless until what happens? I die. And when I die, it locks itself in place. It cannot be changed. And all the provisions and all the promises and all the gifts of that will go into effect and are given away. Well, that's the way a death works. It took a death to enact all the promises of the covenant of forgiveness, relationship, and heart, uh, uh, love-driven obedience. It took a death. And that happened in the Old Testament too. He said, you know, Moses read out the law and then after the people said, we'll do it, even though they're a bunch of liars because they wouldn't do it and they didn't do it, but yeah, we'll do it. And then Moses kills a calf and he kills a goat and then he, he takes this leafy branch and some wool and he dips it in the blood and he sprinkles the people and he sprinkles the book. And what that did was it purified it. It, it enacted that covenant. And then he makes the point in those last couple of verses. Just about everything in the Old Testament was purified by blood. And then look at, the, look at the final statement of this section. Without the shedding of blood, 
There is no forgiveness of sins. Why is a death so necessary? Why do we talk about this death stuff and this blood stuff? Because no blood means no forgiveness. And you can spend the rest of your life trying to turn the fire alarm off, but it will never stop ringing. You can do all the religious stuff you want, and it will never stop waking you up. You can live as wild as you want to live, because if you are wild enough, it'll be quiet, and it will never stop ringing. No death, no forgiveness. No death, no forgiveness. But in God's grace, he sets off the alarm of your heart to say, look, there's something there, and it's real. And then he shows you Jesus, who meets the need of your guilt and finds cleansing forgiveness on the other side of it. Jesus' sacrifice was required because sin separated us from God, and it required death to produce the forgiveness to bring us back to God. Second, Jesus came first to deal with our sins, but he will return to render judgment and salvation. Jesus came first to deal with our sins, but he will return to render judgment and salvation. So if you were to rewind a week and a day, and you were to brave the blazing Texas sun at noon and walk into Longhorn Stadium to see your beloved Texas Longhorns reemerging from the shadows of a decades-long failure to live up to your dreams and the hype of what you're supposed to be because you're playing Alabama, and you're going to beat them this time. And so you brave the noon sun, and you're baking with 100,000 people around you, and you're sweating, and you feel them like rolling down your back. But who cares? We're beating Alabama at halftime. And you're cheering, and you're yelling, and you're hooking horns, you know, like you're taunting those few little Alabama fans that dared show up into your territory. We got them. Then you get into the third quarter, and it's still going great. Now, you and I, because we're not, I mean, maybe you're a Texas fan. I'm not. We know how the story ends. We've seen this one play out. I'm a Georgia fan and Georgia Southern Georgia fan. I know how this works. So I'm just watching. I'm just enjoying it from the comfort of my TV with my air conditioning going. And through the third quarter, man, they're taunting even more. They're louder. They probably popped a few celebratory drinks back, possibly in the stadium. And it's all the more exciting. And then Alabama starts being Alabama because it's the fourth quarter. And all of a sudden, we're, we're losing again. And man, we're devastated. And you can, you can pan the crowd and everybody's quiet and they're just looking down because they've seen it before too. They know. Until a minute is left on the clock and you kick a field goal to go up. And now you really can taunt those Alabama people for about a minute. <laughs> and if you're a Texas fan, you walk out of that stadium destroyed and crushed your highest hopes and taunts and excitement and all those drunk twitter feeds that you stuck out like kind of come back to haunt you now because it didn't quite end the way you thought it was going to and uh, you're devastated and you're crushed but there's this little bitty group of people there this remnant that is wearing crimson and they know how the story was going to end anyways and they walk out celebrating they walk out cheering the world is filled with people reveling in the world's victory, in the world's sin. They're reveling in all the religions they can create for themselves to cover themselves. They're reveling in how Christians 
you know, Christians, they're compromising themselves. They're reveling in how many false teachers are out there. And they're reveling in their false teaching and their, their wonderful false teaching songs. And, and they're having this great celebratory time. And, and, and they even post on TikTok and, and YouTube these amazing deconversion stories of how they used to be Christian until they woke up and saw how wrong they were. And now they've walked away from the faith. And it seems like everybody out there is cheering and a few of them are taunting not all of them but some of them are even taunting like look at it we're going up we're winning but there will always be a remnant that follows Jesus that knows how the story ends and it doesn't cause me to taunt back it causes my heart to break because as long as you revel in that when the final whistle blows Jesus comes back and it's all over. Jesus comes back, and there's not another chance. Jesus comes back, and there's judgment. And that should cause far more tears than reveling in our hearts and our eyes because there's people we love dearly, and there's people that we despise who will spend eternity apart from God. Because the judgment will come. Jesus will return. But it also, it should motivate us in a couple of ways. It should motivate us to hope. Whatever you face in this life is confined to this life. Whatever hurt, whatever pain, whatever injustice you face, that may never fix, it can't break the boundaries of this little vapor called your life. And there's an eternity where everything's right, everything's good, every tear is wiped away, there is no more disease, there is no more sorrow, and there is no more pain. And that's forever, and that's forever, and that's forever. Live with hope. Live with hope. Second, live with urgency. Live with urgency. There is a world full of people where Jesus said, massively, most of them are on a big road headed to an eternity apart from him in judgment. And that should provoke some urgency from the church of Christ that as many of them would be snatched as possible from that road as many of them would have to walk over our bodies to get there. It should live with an urgency because your stuff's going to burn up one day, but the person sitting next to you, they won't. And what you invest in the person next to you, that will go on into eternity. The urgency of witness and the urgency of discipleship, and the last thing I would say, it should lead you to God-glorifying purity. God-glorifying purity. Those who have this hope, the Bible says, purify themselves. If that's what's coming, I want to show this God off with my life and with my lips and with my family and with my work. I want to show you how great he is and then invite you to join him. Hope, urgency, a life of purity. Let's look at it in the text real quickly as we, as we go through. And so again, there was necessary. There's these copies on earth and they are purified by blood. And then there's this real thing in heaven. And Jesus goes into the real thing and he makes a better sacrifice. And unlike on earth where they had to offer a sacrifice every year, offer a sacrifice every year, offer a sacrifice every year with blood that isn't theirs, Jesus goes up into the holy place. Then he goes up into the most holy place where God's presence is. And he goes all the way to the presence of God with the sacrifice of himself. And then what does he do there, does it say? He's in the presence of God on your behalf. He's in the presence of God pleading your case for you. He's in the presence of God to bring you to the presence of God. He's on your behalf in the presence of God. 
And then, as it says, instead of repeatedly, 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 verse 26, he appeared once for all for what purpose? As the age closes out, what was the purpose? To put away your sin. How? By just saying, ah, no big deal. Putting away your sins by the sacrifice of himself. Since it's a big word, I'm going to say it two weeks in a row, and because I know it just kind of takes time to absorb new concepts. Substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary is he takes your place, right, on your behalf. He substitutes himself in the place of you. So substitutionary. And then atonement, a sacrifice, a sacrifice that makes people one, at one minute. And so it's a sacrifice to make God and us one, a sacrifice to bear God's wrath that you should bear, a sacrifice to die a death that you should die, a sacrifice to cancel the debt of sin that you should have to pay so that you and God can be one. And the way Second Corinthians says it is he knew no sin, became sin in your place. He became sin for you. Why? So that in him you could have the righteousness of God. I'll take your sin, Jesus says. I'll give you perfect, spotless righteousness. Mine. What a deal. And yet we still want to cover ourselves with religion. And we still want to cover ourselves with law. And we still want to do everything else. And Jesus just says, I'll take it all. Here, righteousness. I'll take it all. And we still hide. Put away your sins by his death. It says, and then look at these last two verses. And those last we'll cover. It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. At your death, or at the return of Christ, there will be a judgment. Maybe you'll go to a holding tank, a waiting judgment. Maybe you'll go to the presence of Jesus as a believer in Jesus. And at the end of the age, we will stand as believers before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be rewarded for that which we have done in his name for his sake. And fire will pass over our lives, and the areas that were wasted life will burn off. And the areas that were gold and silver and precious stones, the areas that were done for his name or his sake, those will stay and will be rewarded for eternity by Jesus, for living for Jesus, by the power of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus. And then there'll be a great white throne judgment where all of humanity will be there. And God has a book that he's going to open. And every word they said and every action they did and every sin they committed, a book of deeds is opened. And they will be judged perfectly and eternally by exactly what they've done. Everyone will die. It's 100% likelihood. Everyone will face judgment after that. And we will either be judged by what we've done and the life we've lived, or we'd be judged by what Jesus did in the life he lived. It's appointed a man to die once, and then the judgment. Today is the day of salvation. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised to be back next week. You're not promised that your disciple is going to show up again to the next meeting. You're not promised that God will ever Utter your name again by the Spirit to draw you to himself. And I don't say that because I want to use fear to motivate you, but this passage is using fear, and so I'm not going to avoid it. Today is the day of salvation. Don't say I'm too young. I'll wait till I'm older. Don't say I've still got a few things I want to do in college to kind of work it out because I was at home so long. And then don't say, well, maybe when the kids are older or maybe when I have kids or maybe later. Today is the day of salvation. 
We all have an appointment with death, and some of us, that means that life is so much shorter, and it's tragic how short it is. Some of it's full of days. You know what the Bible says about that, too? We're here for a vapor of time. Life's a vapor, and then the wind just blows it away. And once that life is over, there's a judgment. And it will be your life and works, or it'll be his. Would you please turn and embrace him? Would you please believe Don't put it off. Believe if the Spirit is convicting you and the Spirit is drawing you and the Spirit is prompting you. Believe. Don't turn away. And then he closes with the positive side of the equation, doesn't he? He came first time to deal with sins, as we've been talking about, but he's coming back. And when it appears a second time, he is going to save all who earnestly wait on him. And so when he returns, he will not be a lamb that will be silent and meek and stuck on a cross. He won't be a lamb that will bear your slander and your jokes. He won't be a lamb that will let you mock him on TV. He will be a lion king who roars over the earth and the earth will bow before him and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father and there will be a ruling king in his place. He's coming back that way. He went to the cross silently before his accusers and he returned with a sword proceeding from his mouth to strike down the nations. And when he comes back, he'll save everyone who's waiting on him. He'll save those in verse 15 who have been called and believed in him. And here he'll save those who are eagerly waiting on him. Eager has the idea of longing or yearning. I can't wait for him to return. I'm yearning to see Jesus face to face. I want all this frailty gone. I want glory. I want all the perfection that's there. I'm I'm waiting for it. I can't wait. Earnestly. And then waiting. What does it mean? I'll kick my feet up on the sofa and wait for Jesus to come back. I'll wait. No. Waiting in the Bible is always an active posture of faithfulness until the next thing comes. I wait on the Lord by being faithful to the Lord right here, right now with what's in front of me. And so I'm going to be faithful today. I'm going to walk with the Lord today. I'm going to do what he's called me to today. I'm going to let tomorrow worry about itself because today has enough problems to worry about on its own. And I'm going to do today faithfully until he comes back. And when he comes back and finds people who are saved because they've been called and believed, and when he finds people that are waiting, longing for that moment, then all their longing is met and fulfilled at the moment they see Jesus face to face. A few practical things as we, as we wrap up. Man, I had all these great verses to get to, by the way. I'm a little bummed. I'll find a way to get to them at some point. What would forgiveness and reconciliation look like in the various relationships of your life? What would forgiveness and reconciliation look like in the various relationships of your life? Sin always separates. There is a good Savior who lived and died and rose again to forgive you. And since he's forgiven you, he gives you the power to forgive others. So what would it look like to take those steps of reconciliation, to offer up a forgiveness, and to quit holding on to all that stuff that's inside of you? You'd have to walk through that in the different relationships and the different things that might be separating you. But what would forgiveness look like or the steps towards it look like? What would reconciliation or the steps towards it look like? And what's going on in your own relationships? Second, what areas do you struggle to receive forgiveness 
or areas you need to ask forgiveness of God or others? What areas do you struggle to receive forgiveness? What areas do you need to ask forgiveness of God and others? All right, so as Christians, so many times I can't forgive myself. Well, that's good. You don't have to. Right? You sinned against God, not you. Jesus died to forgive you your sins. Right? I don't mean to say that flippantly because it's a real struggle that we face, isn't it? There's so much junk back here. And there's a Jesus who died to redeem you from your real deal sins called transgressions. And so what area of your life do you need to relook at Jesus, relook at death and blood, relook at redemption, so that that area becomes free and clean and part of the story of God again instead of something that you're holding on to because you feel so awful about it? Or what area are you hiding from God? I don't want God to see that. And by the way, he sees it. I don't want God to see that. I don't want to step into the light with that one. What area do you need to ask God for forgiveness? It also might be a conversation you need to have with someone else. And it might be one of those things like, hey, this, this is an area that, that I, I've been hurt. I feel like it was sin. And, and I want to take the steps of reconciliation because uh, I, I really want us to be restored. Or it might be, hey, I've sinned against you in these ways. And I just want to confess that because I want us to be restored again. Last one. What change or encouragement does Jesus' return press on you? What changes or encouragement does Jesus' return press on you? If he's coming back, what kind of hope for the hardship you're facing does it give? If he's coming back, what kind of urgency to your life, what kind of reprioritization of your life would that cause you to make? If he's coming back, what areas of your life would you love to see purified by his grace? aligned with what he's like to show him off. He came to deal with sin. He opened up eternity for us. And he's coming back. Treasure Christ for being a sacrificial mediator. Let's pray. In Jesus' name, Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to draw near. In Jesus' name, we ask you to forgive. In Jesus' name, we ask you to give us the grace to forgive others. In Jesus' name, we ask for power to long again for your return, power to wait with faithfulness and eagerness in our everyday life. Father, I pray that people might be set free today. I pray that people might come alive from the dead today. I pray that people might come out of the chains of unforgiveness into forgiveness. I pray you'd rescue people today. Right now, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I mean, if you've been with us any length of time, I don't try to use fear to motivate you to believe in Jesus. But if the Bible gives us something to fear about, it needs to be put before you very soberly. You get one life. It will end. And I know, look, I'm only 20. It'll end. I'm only 47. It'll end. I've gotten to the place later in life where I know it's going to end. And after your life closes, comes a judgment. It doesn't rejoice my heart to say that, but it's true. And I want to warn you, don't play games with it. Don't put it off. Don't wait. Hear the voice of God to convict you of your sin. And then see Jesus as more beautiful than any sin you could ever cling to. Turn and put your faith in Jesus. You can come, we can pray together. You can fill out the white sheet in your bulletin and say, I gotta, I gotta walk through this with somebody. We'd love to do it. We'd love to do it. But as a forgiven person, with a forgiving God, we're to forgive people. 
What step of forgiveness do you need? Maybe you need to make that surrender right now. God, I've been holding on. I forgive. God, I've been holding this grudge. I've let this bitterness creep in. I want to forgive. Come make that declaration before him here or where you are. Or maybe you see that there's an urgency to life that you've taken out of gear. And there's no living with urgency anymore. And God's just awakening you. There's people that matter. And the stuff that you're going after doesn't. There's people that are eternal. And so much of your pursuits aren't. And he's just waking you up to run with fresh urgency in life. How do you need to respond? Let's stand together and sing. And then you respond as the Lord is leading you. Father, cleanse our hands and cleanse our hearts that we might have clean hands and clean hearts. Make us a generation of seekers who seek to worship you and to seek to draw worshipers to you. God, only you can do it. Would you do it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.